0: Money. Here we go. Money talk. Come Here comes the money. Money,
1: money, money. Welcome to the Free Money Podcast. Uh, this is where uh we take a look at what's holding the world back from investing in progress and crack a couple jokes along the way. Uh um, that's what we do. Yep, yeah. And that's uh it. yeah, and you know, honestly, guys, the payoff for probably one of the longest running jokes on this podcast has finally come. <laughs> It's happening. It's finally portable happening. Portable Alpha. Portable Alpha, yeah. The, uh, f- from now through, uh, what is it, Jan- July 5th, the day after the, f- the, the 4th of July, you can get 20% off your very own Portable Alpha uh, water bottle, uh, coffee mug, or tote bag. Um, so we have illiquid and liquid Portable Alpha strategies for you. Very good. <laughs> Absolutely. You have to
2: be able to take your Portable Alpha with you wherever you go. Yep. Um, movie theaters, yep. you know. Uh, actually, we don't go to movie. <laughs> actually, we don't go anywhere anymore. So <laughs> yeah, <the> whole- <laughs> we yeah, forgot yeah, about that. That's a good point. Strategy. Maybe maybe
1: like uh, the portable alpha that people actually pay lots of money for, uh, our portable alpha is, uh, you know, sort of just a prestige good. product. Yeah, yeah. It's a
2: prestige product. I think it's just as good. You want to have your portable alpha um, water bottle behind you when you're on the Zooms.
1: Yes. that's clear. Yeah, that's, I mean, I've got, I've also got my, uh, my very own uh, free money branded snapback uh, that just came in. So uh, interesting. And we it's have like top quintile top quintile, yeah so you can uh you know proclaim your uh the persistence of your returns and there's uh some special underwear and um, yeah. and t-shirts on the site too <laughs> and in
2: case you think we are actually not serious we are serious this is our funding this is our this is our funding the free bunny podcast yep um what's the etsy site
1: there Sloan? uh it's free money atelier uh there's a link in <laughs> uh i'm such a tool <laughs> no you're not dear listeners please visit our free
2: money atelier Yeah, the exactly. Goods. the best free money goods that money can buy if that makes yes,
1: sense Yes, there will be a link in the description while you're at it uh why not write a, a review for the podcast as well do it yeah just do it we love you come on just do it
2: if you made it this far you should give us a five star if you made it through the opening
1: intro all right, what are we talking about we're talking about what the hell is the Department of Labor doing? Oh, gosh. <laughs> Good reminder. Dude, the
2: department, for the people on the, that listen to this show that might not know the ins and outs of pension regulation, um, the regulator did some pretty annoying stuff this week. Well, interesting stuff. It's, it, annoyance is a function of your uh, maybe political position and, and where you come down on the value of ESG data, environment, social government's data, because the Department of Labor has come out with new guidance to say, retirement plans are not vehicles for furthering social goals or policy objectives. Just to be clear, retirement plans are vehicles for furthering social goals. (laughs) It's called retirement security. (laughs) But that's okay. That's okay, Department of Labor. I I understand where you're taking this. You're saying the investment strategies should not themselves choose social goals as an objective. You have to remind yourself that the objective is a very specific social goal and that is paying the pensions of the members for which you're deploying the capital. Has that been
1: Yeah. This is
2: I was trying to be like, how do I explain this to the lay audience on like how bizarre this is? It's like reminding people not to drink the water when a tidal wave is coming because the water in the tidal wave is salt water and you shouldn't drink salt water. It's like, yeah, dude, understood. We're not drinking the water, but there's a tidal wave coming, and should not we be talking about that? I mean, here, here the. The ESG world is getting ready to go mainstream among these uh, pension funds, sovereign funds, endowments, foundations, all these fiduciary bound investors. By the way, most don't fit under the Department of Labor, which is why the Department of Labor in this case is talking directly to the corporate pension plans under ERISA, 1976. And so here, all of these fiduciary bound investors are getting kind of a warning shot that like, you better not be using ESG to pursue social goals. And the, the tidal wave in this case is the fact that um, ESG is really going mainstream. We had the pandemics, we got all this stuff going on uh, in 2020. It's been a heck of a year. And what that has done is to normalize the abnormal. It's normalized things that are abnormal. And what does that do? It brings the techniques and methodologies for predicting and managing abnormal risk into the mainstream. And so, what you're now seeing are the world's biggest fiduciary bound investors rethinking the very methodology upon which they invest. They're getting ready to fully adopt E, S, and G what's hard about this moment it's like the department of labor realized that this wave was coming and that this the the investors that literally put capital in capitalism the 100 trillion that we talk about um are about to change their methodology and use ESG this it's going to create some winners and losers and i imagine that you know certain folks in the financial services industry could be a loser um but the reality is Instead of telling us not to drink the water in the tidal wave, which is like saying, don't use ESG as a goal. They're saying you have to use ESG only when it has a financial consequence, but it's obvious that it does.
1: As a mechanical matter, like, doesn't this mean that like, so there are all these ESG strategies that seek to like take oil out of the S&P 500, right? But deliver the equivalent return. Um, you know, sometimes there's a small cost associated with that or with like some tracking error. So does this mean that like, if I implement one of these strategies, in a, like if, if this guidance is passed, if I implement such a strategy in my corporate plan and lag the index by 30 basis points, I would be in abrogation of my fiduciary duty.
2: That's the, that's the warning shot they're sending. But the problem with their logic is like I say, it's like, don't drink the salt water in the tidal wave. They don't actually tell you how to deal with the wave of ESG that's coming. This is, we, we've talked about this with Gene Rogers, where we're like, look, this is a pathway to resilience. That's how you use it. I call this the last mile problem of ESG, where like we get all this ESG data comes right up to the door, but we don't know how to bring it into the organization. And so if there's a positive thing from this announcement, it will force us all in this space to say, okay, here's the ESG data on climate change. Here's how you use it in a financial context. You can use climate hazards to predict damages to property. You can predict cost of insurance changing. You can predict defaults on mortgages near, I don't know, flood zones. There's all kinds of like smart predictions we can do using ESG data. And what this will catalyze is a bunch of people to figure out that last mile problem, how we use it. The fear I have is it scares people away from using the ESG data, which will help them kind of better understand these abnormal risks, which have been normalized lately um, in their portfolios. And so that's not good. I don't think that's good for the world, for the investors. It's not better outcomes.
1: It seems like it like reinforces like a myopic short term view, right? Where you can be, totally. you know, like penalized for a quarter's out performance when you're responding to like a 30 year trend. I mean, like, you know, we were talking on email about like, about, you know, basic stuff like food, <laughs> you know, I mean, like where like actual bib- biblical stuff is happening like in East Africa. They have COVID-19 locusts and heavy rains right now. Uh, Right. Like <laughs> it's nuts. Yeah.
2: No, I mean, it, it, but so to your point, it's like these this, these ESG factors help to reroute these pension funds in the real world. It's like, oh wait, we are the capital in capitalism. We should probably think about how our capital connects into communities, cities, uh, and you mentioned food. How how we can like help supply a healthier ecosystem of food because the po- there's so many positive externalities from the food. And, uh, the good food, the healthy food, you know, for the healthcare system, for all the different pieces. And, and it does actually flow back to these long-term investors and how they think about their investing. And so the Department of Labor saying, don't think about any of that is super frustrating (laughs) for for our project slow where we're, we're, Free money from the bounds of you know short termism, and here the Department of Labor is let's create more bounds of short termism. Yeah,
1: yeah they're, they're like no, 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 no. Here's you're we're just gonna like there's only one thing that is good. There's only one good kind of investment, and it's the exactly. one that performs the best in this quarter. Yeah, uh, you know what? Is probably, is like, I, mean, I think I, they I, don't probably, know. I feel like we gotta get.
2: They probably listened to our podcast, and they you know, and so they needed to put out a new piece of regulation the tens of people that they're getting scared
1: are <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right, yeah the free money but so are talk growing. About it? yeah well like so i i mean i think like let's see if we can get a picture on like the actual real world right because i mean what we, we're talking about pretty abstract stuff um
2: and so you know, let's go my
1: friend oh man earthman cousin ambassador cousin
2: uh, I promise you, Sloan, Earthman Cousin will influence your thinking. And I know that because Time said she was one of the 100 most influential people in the world. Time magazine. I've heard of that. Yeah. And she was executive director of the World Food Program for a long time.
1: Which I think that's the largest philanthropic organization on Earth. Is it? I guess we'll, hopefully she'll pick up and we'll talk to her about it. I mean, according to <laughs> some kind of website. Yeah.
0: Hey, uh,
2: (laughs) Ambassador Cousin, we should probably call you.
0: Oh, please, no. Earthren works for me. (laughs) (laughs) Earthren, it's so nice to have you. Give me more gravitas in this conversation, ambassador cousin it is.
2: (laughs) (laughs) You bring, well, we've already been talking about your profile as the Time Magazine 100 Most Influential People and the endless honors that you've had, including running the World Food Program, being an ambassador, you know, so the, the gravitas is definitely there. And we're just pumped to have you on, and we want to talk to you and start getting you talking about all this stuff you're working on. All right, Sloan, ask, jump in. Ask yeah. Me first I mean, question.
1: so, like, we, we, we were just sort of um, talking about how, a, you know, the US Department of Labor kind of has issued this kind of broad shot that's trying to redirect investors' attention away from, you know, kind of environmental, social, and governance issues, right? And, you know, so we were kind of thinking we might refocus on a really basic one like food security, which, you know, kind of was already in a pretty precarious state in some countries. And you, you got to imagine COVID-19 hasn't really helped. Um <laughs> Like, what sort of effects have uh, as the virus had, and sort of where are we uh, in general right now?
0: Wow, um, that could take up our entire conversation. But let me let me give you some top line thoughts uh, that I've been sharing with the world, and that and, and part of conversations where leaders around the world are are looking at and the the challenges that uh, COVID has laid bare. Uh, around our global food systems the, the 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 covid confirmed what we always knew was true the interdependency of countries on on, on a global food system, and that requires open transport, protection of workers, uh, that, and that the vulnerability of every nation is potentially impacted by disruptions in that food system. Uh, no country goes unscathed. We see, we've seen it in our pork industry in the United States uh As well as in the movement of rice from India, when there were slowdowns at the ports before help before uh, port workers were considered essential um, so we 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 know that, um, that these challenges affect farmers most directly here in the United States, we have a food system that that's basically two dual food chains one uh that supports institutions um and the other that supports retail and that with the with the shelter in place orders the the institutional food chain was shut down overnight and what that meant then was that you had the 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 pictures that were were broadcast on so many television stations during the early days of the crisis of dairymen pouring milk down drains of uh, uh, farmers uh plowing produce under at the same time that you were you were witnessing uh, an increase in the number of people going hungry in the United States because it identified for us how many people in, in our own country live from paycheck to paycheck. As, as we've seen the escalation in unemployment climb to over 40 million people and those people being forced to many of them for the first time to uh, seek assistance to feed their families because uh, while our system, those two food chains are quite efficient, they were not and are not agile. Um, and so we are now having discussions about should we have more diversity in our food chains, more regional regional, and local storage distribution and processing. Um, and those are conversations that would not have occurred because it was deemed too hard to do and the system too efficient to require the discussion before COVID-19.
1: That's fascinating. I, you know, I I wonder too, how, how this has played out sort of in the global South, right? Where, um, a lot of development economists will talk about, uh, things like microcredit as a means of, um, you know, providing some stability to, to small farmers. But, you know, one tends to think that if there's a risk or an instability, leverage doesn't tend to make that easier to deal with
0: yeah you're you're you're, you're absolutely right in the, in the global South we witnessed this I'll give you an example in uh, Rwanda you have a nascent egg commercial egg industry that um, supports the not just the hotels and restaurants because eggs are not a traditional commodity consumed by uh the rwandan particularly uh the 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 low-income population in rwanda and so the egg industry provides support to um hotels restaurants institutions the and across border to in in congo to uh the, the UN troops uh, through and, and to, into Uganda for uh, consumption in their institutions as well. With COVID, it's when the institutions shut down and borders closed, what you saw was inventory without market. And so merely providing the without the provision of microcredit to those mark to those individuals, you could not um they would be forced to slaughter their slaughter their birds because they couldn't afford feed. And but giving mm-hmm. the micro credit without giving them access to market means they don't have the ability to repay. And so with what you saw was development actors coming in to provide business continuity support by purchasing from those small holders for distribution to those in urban areas who do not have sufficient access to animal protein. Uh, Households with children under five or pregnant or breastfeeding women, where you could provide them with then this additional protein when they were uh, sheltering in place while also providing business continuity to the to the egg producers, the small and micro enterprise egg producers, that uh, would not create the additional debt of a, of, of, of a micro loan, um, and the additional stress of a micro loan, but would ensure the business continuity and the opportunity for business recovery once the once the shelter in place orders were lifted
2: that that's fascinating and and it, the hearing you talk through um, that challenge I hear you using words like rural to urban markets distribution uh, and so given that you know my project at Stanford has often been about how, how do we how do we build new infrastructure, I feel uh, obligated to sort of first sort of figure out how much of an issue of food security it, is it an infrastructure problem? Um, You know, do we need more roads, rail, et cetera, or do we need more food is kind of the question I'm trying to
0: get to. Um, Well, it depends on context. Um, So there you will often hear food security advocates or even the critics of the work in this area say that we produce enough food for everyone in the world. Uh, and so no one should go hungry or malnourished. But the reality of it is that food production and what foods are produced depend upon uh location um much of our food is is grown and transported through long um long value chains uh, from from one and cross borders from one country to another uh or mm. from one region to another um, and uh, again, the, the challenges of those long, uh, food chains have, have been observed and recognized as a result of COVID. And, the, and, the, and what it has raised is then the question of infrastructure, the questions about, um, the, the adequacy of storage, which has become very clear in in particularly in sub-Saharan Africa, we don't have access to enough storage to support food availability and to ensure the agility that is necessary in a food system when there is a disruption. Nor do we have the road the 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 road systems that support the access that smallholders need to um, to access and storage facilities if they were in existence to access the 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 um, markets in in other in urban areas where, when they need additional, uh, seeds and tools. And so roads is a big part of ensuring, uh, that, that we limit disruption in the food system. Storage is a significant part of that. But mm. also, we know that, um, processing facilities and where they are located. Should be considered when we talk about um, so when we talk about logistics of the food system um, because we have seeing the consolidation of processing have a detrimental impact on the availability of food when healthcare, when, when food processing workers can't get access to those processing facilities because they're in shelter in place in other areas that don't allow them to travel from one place to another. So those are all factors. It, it, the the both distribution and food availability have uh, the, the significant. Have, we've witnessed significant challenges on both sides of the equation as a result of co- of the COVID nineteen uh, issues and how they have evolved um, over over the globe. Because we saw different issues raised as the uh, Pandemic began to affect different countries, um, and it, but what I mean by that, for example, is that when borders were shut down between, um, or transport was shut down between the U.S. and China, and trade was shut down between the U.S. and China, you saw the impact that had on uh, the on the transport of. Of pork, uh, particularly into the into the processing systems in the United States that were incapable of taking all of the all of the stock that was available for processing um and you saw that we saw the same kinds of challenges in 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 countries as far away as Nigeria and Kenya when farmers struggled to move from um from rural areas into urban areas where they were required to identify new methods for distribution and sale of their products when they lacked access to markets when there was no refrigeration or storage available that resulted in the spoilage of products we saw it in again back to india and china where china was able to process a significant amount of the perishables that were not used in the in the system that that supported their but India did, did, does not have that same processing capacity, so almost seventy percent of their perishables were lost because of the shutdown and of the institutional supply wow. chains that support hotels and and universities and 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 other institutional buyers.
2: Okay, so that rich complexity which is just hearing you talk. I feel like you could probably talk for 40 hours and continue to blow our minds. But but I guess the reason I asked you that was I wanted... So So we started off this little podcast by talking about ESG and how ESG offers a very rich understanding of investment opportunities. And... When I ask you, is this an infrastructure problem or a food problem, you're jumping into the complexity that is food security, the links to economic growth, the challenges that are infrastructural. It's an incredibly complex space, but it strikes me that in hearing you talk about it, I was making little notes. I I heard like more than 10 truly commercial investment opportunities that exist and and I guess that was part of the reason we wanted you to come on today was ultimately we wanted to talk about food and food security, but we also wanted to talk about it as an investment opportunity. And so without leading you anymore down this, you know, as the witness here, I'm curious, like, where do you see um, investors having an opportunity in uh, in investing in food security? I mean, I know you've mentioned many already, but just maybe run us through the investable opportunity.
0: Sure. You know the the the, let's look at it from from an economic from an a a, an economic standpoint. You guys are about the business, so let me put it into those terms. Uh, F.A.O. estimates that the gross value of agricultural production is over $5 trillion. And the World Bank says it's closer to $3.2 trillion. Whichever number, it's a big number. Wow. And the, then the yeah, World Bank also suggests that the system generates two to five times as much value um, off-farm, between farm and consumer, as it does on farm, mm-hmm. and so we know that in the United States, for every dollar spent on food by the u s consumer, uh, eleven cents is accounted for in farm activity and what goes to the farm and all of the other value is in the middle, and that uh, the so the estimated value of the global food system po- post-farm to consumer is about $8 trillion or 10% of the $80 trillion of global economy. And so we know that there are any number of investments in ag tech, food tech, innovation from uh, the farm to the consumer, as well as new tool, new um, investable assets coming online to support um, to support waste. Reduction and waste elimination post uh, consumer purchases or uh, post um, the 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 uh, disposal of of food at the institutional level, but the reality is that the 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 investors are not. Seizing upon these opportunities today. Mm. Um, and what we are witnessing is that there, while there are increased investments in across the, 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 the Uh, ag tech, food tech innovation from agriculture to consumer distribution to, um, new plant based products, et cetera. That, um, the number, the, the percentage of, of investment required in 2018 was at about $320 billion. But, and that's the, the less then 1% of that demand for investment was actually met in deals. And even where the there was investment, there were in, in 2018 about 209 ag-related or ag-tech, food-tech-related deals. Um, those deals did not go to... Underserved or low income or developing communities, less than 0.1% went to those, any of those communities. And so there's a significant opportunity for the investor community to embrace the potential if they are willing to accept some risk. As well as to recognize that there's a longer return time for agricultural investments than there are for the more attractive investments that asset uh, uh, managers tend to tend to uh, to to to, to uh, gravitate towards.
2: So, so that's a really important thing. So just just to clarify my world the, the pension funds the sovereign funds we take risk that's like the, the whole point of what we do is we take risk to generate return in fact we have to take risk to generate sufficient return what we're terrible at sorry guys is innovation we are really bad at being first we want to see a track record and then the capital crowds in and there's too many of us and we you know the fee structures go through the roof but so how like in this case, we would usually get people over that innovation leap by by doing demonstration cases of how they can invest in food security and how they can make money. I, I probably can't think of ten big pensions or uh, or sovereign funds in the world that are really active in agriculture. They just it just doesn't seem to be an area they're focused on. So, what are the entry points here that we could kind of push them towards to explore?
0: Well, there you, you, we've talked about all of them. We've talked about from production transformation to on-farm activities, from uh, new digitization tools at farm level, IoT tools at farm level that will impact. The productivity of farms as well as creating more sustainability in agricultural production. Um, distribution and logistics. We, there, there is, there, there, the investments are skewed towards uh, larger companies. We need investors that are willing to invest in smaller com- companies trying to address nutrition challenges as well as um the, the logistics challenges. Um the the last mile delivery system that um that we we know that um in many low-income communities, the access to food through um, through through internet access that we, many of us, take for granted today is not being extended into those communities. And here in the United States, for example, we know that there are 23 million people who live more than a mile away from a supermarket, um, and many of those are the same consumers that do not have access to to um, internet um, purchasing for food and so new tools are coming online to address those uh, invest the, the necessity for investing in those companies that will help us reach those consumers um, we also know that we need investment in more the um, foods that will meet cultural demand, but also healthier outcomes for populations. Um, and there we have seen how um, how plant-based, Uh, proteins coming online have brought in additional, um, have have brought in significant revenue to those asset managers who have invested in that space. Um, but those, those products that are coming online again are not coming online in support of the consumers that we are, are, that we are most concerned about who are most impacted most detrimentally impacted by the food system today. During my research at Stanford, um, I explored the landscape around these the issues that we're talking about today, and last, at the end of last year, with the support of, of, of our friend here, Dr. Ashby Monk, set up a new enterprise <laughs> called, uh, Food Systems for the Future, where we are working to do exactly what you just described, identifying those assets that we can, that we can, um, invest in that will address and impact the, um, nutrition challenges of these targeted communities uh, while also providing a commercial return. Um, and looking at the u s and Rwanda as our first markets for entry to develop exactly what you said that case study that um, that proof of concept that you can invest in the agricultural space beyond the elite and and affluent farmers and consumers and deliver and a financial return, as well as make the deliver the impact that is necessary to address the, the food security and nutrition challenges that we've been discussing.
1: But those are just fascinating, like macro level opportunities. Um, you, you know, like I, I, I think you know as as you're talking i you know i wonder too about um like i mean obviously we try to to influence the behavior of pension funds and investors around the world but you know as sort of a a conscientious pseudo hippie right uh w- what kind of actions are can one take productively just as an individual like i i mean through quarantine i've seen how hard it is to grow a single tomato um but like, like what, what, what is a good thing for an individual to do it, you know, to, to work on the problems of food security?
0: Well, you know, as as individuals and and as individuals with with many of your your listeners are high net worth individuals, we need their support to invest in organizations like FSF, like Root Capital, um, that's and and Acumen and others who are working to address these challenges with new market based tools that will deliver the the evidence that. That is required to grow the agricultural productivity of our food system in a manner that is sustainable. And as I said, not just for the affluent, but for everyone.
2: It's amazing. Um, uh, I, I've been really grateful to have the opportunity to work with you on this project, <laughs> your friend, and um, really pumped that you could come on and kind of help us unravel this complex issue and I think it, it it is an investable issue and so I encourage everybody, you know, who's listening, if you want to sit down and have a chat with Earthran, just send me a note and I'll connect to you. But Earthhrin, thank you so much for taking the time and
1: um you know Yeah, thank you so this is really been Fascinating it.
0: Yeah. I, and I, I would ask that your listeners go to www.fsfinstitute.net, and they can find out more about the issues that we've been discussing about the potential for investment opportunity, potential, potential for delivering financial return, as well as making an impact that gets us beyond the, oh, isn't this bad, to the, let's make a difference. I love it.
2: Heck yeah. And we'll put yeah. a link to the website in, our, in the notes for the show. So, thank you again. For sure, Nathan. we really appreciate it
0: very much for the opportunity to participate.
2: Oh, thank you. All right, Bye-bye. bye. Bye. You know, I like when we her. started. She's amazing. I mean, you know, like I'm. Uh, I mean, full disclosure. Since she added me, I'm on her board, <laughs> um, <laughs> and I, it's it's unpaid. Just in case you think I was promoting my own, you know, my own wealth here uh I, I do it because she's she's just out there on tippy point of the spear trying to solve these problems and create some investable products that are going to solve the most important issues and food and yeah. and i think the reason you know we wanted to talk about esg we wanted to talk about you know how you can use esg to sort of cultivate new understandings like we talked to her for 20 minutes like if you aren't smarter on food, food security, the investable opportunities, then then I, I think like we missed the point because the point was to show how this lens can deliver such a rich and like detailed understanding of a place. And it started, by the way, with her wanting to solve a problem.
1: Yeah, and you know, and I, I think too, like it's important to like you. T- we're talking about new perspectives that you gain. A lot of the literature, when you read about like how to invest in a frontier market, will stress that you want to invest in either existing big companies with good with dominant market positions or banks. Uh, <laughs> you yeah. know, um, like I mean, if you if you look at, I mean, there's you can usually compare a country ETF to a big local bank and and get basically the same thing. Um, so, like the you know, I think it's fascinating to take this view of okay, how can we create, uh, an, you know, a better infrastructure for local food, um, that generates a financial return that might be more secure than, you know, I mean, you've got like a, a double B credit rating, um, on your, fin- and your, you know, on your financial infrastructure investments, but, um, exactly. and, and before you hit
2: eat. the tune, before you hit that tune, <laughs> <laughs> let me say one more thing, which is, um, to bring it back to the insane comments of the department of labor. I think what drives me so crazy is like if you're using ESG and you're truly understanding the opportunity set with all the different factors, you almost end up um, just by a function of doing the work with a creative or innovative solution. By saying you can't think about the E S and G, you're going to be pushed towards these standard financial products, which are not solving these problems. You know, we need to innovate and we need to bring this capital into new places, which means we need new lenses of analysis, which means we need to help plans use ESG and not scare them into just reverting back to hedge funds and private equity funds that are charging a fortune. So, yeah, that was my final thought.
1: Yeah. And, you know, in deep research lies durable returns, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's like the, you know, the biggest axiom of investing. But with that said, I got to hit the button. I got to hit the button. (laughs) It's time for Dear Ashby. Uh, this is the part of the show where uh, we ask questions that listeners send in to the one and only Dr. Ashby Monk. Um, if That's you would me. like to ask a question, send us an email. Um, either if you have one of our emails, go ahead and use that uh, or DM us on Twitter um, or send an email to freemoneypod at gmail.com. Um, spelled free like free, money like money. Thank you for the clarification. And, and pod <laughs> with one D, I guess. <laughs>
2: True. <laughs>
1: Um, so the first question is like uh, from a you know kind of a local inside politics thing. So you know we have something called a comptroller in New York, which is amazing, right? Like you know I just picture you know things are out of troll. Uh, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but our our comptroller Scott Stringer, who's incidentally running for mayor, um, has call has been uh, making sort of a, a, a big deal about how GM is not disclosing uh, much about its lobbying practices, and he's accused them of privately working against policies that they have publicly supported, which sounds evil as heck. And I'm having a hard time understanding if it's plausible or not.
2: You know, it is totally plausible. We call it greenwashing. I mean, I I don't know exactly what the the lobbying was about. I think I read some of it. It was about fuel standards or something. and, And GM was taking a very public stance that they're for the standards, but then behind the scenes, they're against the standards. And and it's it's an epidemic. It's this is part of the challenge of alternative data and ESG data, but also it's great promise. So if you think about like the the reporting that's done that makes a company look green, you know they're going out there saying, "Look at the community engagement. Look at our public statements. Let's let's sell this data to the investors that we're green." Well, that's ESG slash alternative data, right? It's not conventional. It's to give these organizations the the perspective that they are doing good for the world but on the flip side if they're not because there's really no standards around that reporting at least usually there isn't sometimes you can't tell lies um it's (laughs) it's pretty hard to you know get to the bottom of it without more alternative data you know like I, i can remember uh somebody telling me a couple of really interesting use cases for alternative data where it's actually used to hold companies accountable like if you're uh you know pointing cameras at an RV uh, production facility, you can count the number of RVs coming off the line. If you're trying to track a construction company building a building in China, you know, you can point the satellite imagery and check the, the, uh, the shadow every day at the same time and watch the building get longer and longer as in taller and taller. And so you can monitor companies with this alternative data. And so this to me is like a reflection that like, we're still in this like immature phase where people who have the data can manipulate it and game the system. But over time, we're going to end up, um, you know, being able to hold those people accountable with the same tools that they're misusing today. I don't know if that makes sense.
1: That makes sense. Yeah. That satisfies. I hope it satisfies our listener. Uh, you know, we'll probably get, uh, hey, you know, yeah, well we didn't make enough jokes about being out of comp control. Um, <laughs> <laughs> <True>. um, <laughs> which, you know, I'm sure that there's a, a you know, a, a good comp troll pun uh, constituency out there. Um the next one is a is a, you know, I think a, a really, you know, a recurring question. Uh how come alternatives to lagged private equity reporting have not been adopted and, you know, um this one comes from you know, just to outline why they're asking that. You'll let's let's say, you know, it's uh, the end of June is coming up, you know, if I'm a private equity fund, um, what what month data might I be providing my investors, like March uh, performance or something like that? Or January? Yeah,
2: it's it, this, uh, this lagged private equity reporting, which is often referred to as roll forward, where they just take an old, you know, an old nav, and they roll it forward along with like, you know, either some uh, some nav is rates. a net asset value for the oh yeah net asset among values us. <laughs> inside baseball um yeah the, the the value of the company is taken and then they basically slap some return onto that and and they literally just go forward a quarter and they say, look we made another return this quarter uh, so it's not very good science in in the age of you know private companies delivering rockets filled with people to space stations like this is this is the opposite of that, um, it, and you know it's uh, it can be fixed, and I'll come to that in a second. But in general, doing this well with the tools we have today um, means one a GP like stipulating some kind of a public market proxy in the agreement, and they don't like doing that because they don't like being compared. To things like the Russell 3000, you know, they can be wildly different. And so in in terms of a benchmark, they don't want to kind of set that, uh, that standard. Um, and, and frankly, it could even open them up to some legal challenges if they get too far out there, uh, in terms of like, uh, deviating from a, from a benchmark. Um, they also just plain and simple, like the fact that they don't have the volatility in the performance numbers and Um, and so, you know, they literally sell their products often as a lower volatility alternative. And so it's like in there, we've talked about this on another episode, but it's in their economic interest not to have that volatility. And, um, I mean, you would think that like, okay, the, the, the things that we would think that like the GPs who are managing the business should have a very good sense of fundamental value and that like they themselves could just clue us in and say, Hey, here's the value they don't do it for whatever reason, or I haven't seen it done. Um, but but the exciting thing I think, and this is the punt, like the long punchline to this joke, is there are data science companies emerging that are doing ground up valuations. Uh, they're using fundamentals and methodologies that are you know pretty standard and applying it to the PE space. And it, we're going to be in a position soon to. Provide these types of valuations in real time. And and we're going to have to, and the GPs are going to have to get on board with it because most of the pension capital is moving from defined benefit to defined contribution. And so you need these faster nabs um, in order to get it right. And so, like the writings on the wall, we're going there. I wrote a paper on this actually with this team at FEV Analytics, um, which I'm happy to send anybody. You know, they're enough listeners for us to, um, worry about people inundating me with requests for this paper. Uh, so just email me if you're are interested in how you do, um, how you do these types of analyses. I've actually spent way too much time thinking about it. So I'll leave it there.
1: Yeah. The, uh, the crowd clamors for detail on how to, how to value Don't their private you, equity. I know. You can see my <laughs> inbox filling up with, ones and twos of emails i'm breaking into stress hives thinking about it email sucks <laughs> um the so the last question is is one that um uh, this one comes from me because i'm like thinking about uh a, a long read for the free money folks um and you know i i was just spending some time looking at people forecasting a quote-unquote pension time bomb um and this seems to be like some people's like full time jobs. Like if you if you Google them, it's like you know their their whole thing is like the pension system is going to explode. The pension system is going to explode. They're called actuaries. <laughs> <laughs> Ooh, shots fired! Sorry, so, no, but this
2: literally what actuaries do they do mortality (laughs) they project liabilities
1: and they and it's and they all and they're like if there's a time bomb
2: yeah so they're the ones that are like holy crap you got to make eight percent in this pension fund to have any chance of meeting this future liability i mean i love this question i'm glad it was you because i was i was like this is a good one um it's kind of like the climate catastrophe you know for, for the left wing, we're, like, really focused on the climate catastrophe as, like, the issue because we're, like, these conservatives, like, they have wildly naive in terms of – or, like, purposefully, you know, ignoring facts. But the pension time bomb is, like, the equivalent for us where we're, like, no, of course we can make 8% forever and, like, yeah, these, yep. these promises are real, you know? Like, there's this no problem. Don't look here. Like, we should be spending <laughs> our money – on schools and potholes and not trying to figure out how to pay for these these pensions and so there is a huge political part to the pension time bomb just as there is to the the climate one um and and like they're both rooted in some type of science so so on the pension time bomb we'll leave the climate another one but the t- pension time one bomb is like we're gonna live way longer like yeah we're gonna live longer that's the good news the not so great news is that your longevity is going to sow the seeds of this like global population catastrophe that could destroy social services and unravel some of like the foundations of our, of our kind of, you know, social welfare state. And, you know, so if we believe that we're going to have like nanobots extending our, our lives out past a hundred years, we're going to have to figure out who pays for that. And so embedded in those like time bomb pension, you know, nut job blogs is a real question about, you know, if we're having teachers retiring on a full pension at 50, you know, I'm not saying I approve or disapprove. I'm just stating facts. Firemen retiring on full pensions at 45, whatever. Um, those people could live until they're 110. And how are we going to pay for that? And who's going to pay for that? And and is that fair that because you you know you picked a unionized career with great benefits that you get the benefit of that, but I don't. I'm on a defined contribution pension at at Stanford. Yeah,
1: me too. Uh, yeah, me too.
2: You know, and so that's like in all these things, like the pension time bomb is obviously like um, it's a polemical way of like getting everybody focused on the issue, but it, at the core is like some really hard challenges to to resolve. I don't know how we solve that.
1: Yeah. One of the things that I thought was really interesting in a lot of the conversations about it is people will use like a, you know, an assumed rate of return of like 3%, um, you know, and then they can get the size of the time bomb to be like 90, $90 trillion, you know, <laughs> exactly. No, but it, it's, uh,
2: it's like the people who use climate models that ha- but like, they're like, no human action will like be taken in, the, in time to prevent yeah. the worst catastrophe. So we're heading towards seven degrees. In terms of you know and and so Good. fair yeah so so like I don't mean to be a jerk, you know, in general, like I'm trying to solve climate change, and I'm trying to help pensions survive, um so I'm like trying to be like a middle of the road commentator here, uh but the the thing is the three percent people are crazy, you know it's it's not fair to discount these liabilities at three percent, you know it the fair thing is probably somewhere you know, around 5%, 6%, like look at Ontario teachers where they are, you know, I think they're five and a quarter or something, you know, and so when you see that the Canadians who seem pretty sensible about their pensions are kind of split between the five and six in terms of the discount rate they use, and then you come south of the border and like we're split between six and eight, it's like, what? Well, what's the
1: difference? I think the average there's like publicplandata.org, and I think their average on the, of those plans is like seven point two percent. That's a lot. That means that like
2: we're we're really confident that our under resourced pension plans are going to go out there and knock it out of the park, and we're not resourcing them for that. You know, it's funny. Like the Canadian pensions are resourced for that type of performance, and guess what? <laughs> They're the ones at five and a quarter. Yeah, yeah. You know, yep. our pension funds are you know, two guys and a dog getting paid 90 grand each, um, and you know, complete reliance on hedge funds. It's such a rigged system. Oh, you're gonna, this is not a way for me to go into the weekend, but, uh, um, <laughs> maybe it's a reason uh, to go to the weekend. Yeah.
1: Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's, uh, <laughs> it's time to, uh, you know, take, we're taking the week off. Uh, you know, we'll, right. we'll be back, uh, after the 4th of July, but, um, Please uh, come back with us, dear listener. Yeah. Um, we love Thank you very you so much. much and hope you have a wonderful, we do long love. weekend. Bye.
0: Bye.